Welcome to Booked. I'm Livius Nedden. And I'm Rob Olson. What we're bringing you tonight is the third of three in a series of Noir at the Bar live readings for the uh, Noir at the Bar Volume 2 release party in Corridan, Indiana. Um, this is, yeah, the final installment. We only have uh, two stories for you this evening, but they are two really, really good ones. Um, <laughs> uh, Rob made all these great notes. I got to tell you, Rob, when he makes notes, they're always so detailed. And, like, he put in, like, you know, the person's name, you know, and then what they wrote and then what episodes we reviewed them on or talked to them or they appeared in a reading. And David James Keaton, first reader tonight, uh, I'm not even going to go through this list. We just don't have enough time. I'm going to. <laughs> we reviewed ZB&B in episode 18 and followed that up in episode 19 with an interview with David James Keaton. Uh, you might remember, if you listen to that, that he had pulled out his tape recorder and was proving Dan... Hines, our guest host, wrong um, with his little tape recorder going back to the previous episode. Uh, then we skip forward to episode 75 where he did a reading at the wrong kind of reading. He read that tap, tap, tap story, uh, which is just awesome. And then he hosted the Shindig in Chi-Town. He was one of the MCs for that. So he appears in episodes 79 through 82 as the MC in those episodes. And one of my favorite episodes, he was a co-host for our review of Zombie Bake Off with his episode 38, 83. <laughs> I think I ran out of breath reading all that. Listen, did you have the same feeling I did? Did you have a fear that a waiter would keep popping his head in that room in Corydon <laughs> like they did at the Shindig in Chi-Town and Keaton would just lose his shit again on the guy? They must have heard because no waiter walked into that room the entire time. <laughs> So they knew David James... <laughs> So David James Keaton is our first reader this episode with Burning Down DJs. Um, uh, this is coming fresh off of his um, off of his honeymoon to uh, his his uh, marriage to the lovely Amy, formerly Luke. I don't know if she changed her name to Keaton or not. <laughs> Maybe she just doesn't want to be associated with that guy that closely. I'm not really sure. Amy James Keaton. Amy. <laughs> You know what? I don't care what she changed her name to. If we ever mention her on the show again, it's going to be Amy James Keaton. That's right. So that's uh, that's brilliant stuff. So um, not only is this story um, uh, hilarious in parts, as you've probably come to expect from Mr. Keaton, um, but the whole setup is just absolutely brilliant. The setup? You're talking about the setup with his counterpart? In the room? Yeah, 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 yeah. The the like him telling you before the story, like him setting yeah. up what was supposed to happen during the story. Yeah, he and and a lot of it revolves around if if you hear him mention um, his collection or Fish Bites Cop is the name of it. He's got a short story collection coming out called Fish Bites Cop, and in promotion of that, he uh, created a Facebook page for the Fish Bite Cops collection, and he posts. Um, videos or news articles about crazy things that police are doing. Usually they're um, morally questionable or, you know, like things caught on tape, that type of thing. And he gives an explanation about um, <laughs> about C.J. Edwards' response on Facebook a lot of times when he posts these things, and it's, it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. So C.J. Edwards is, <laughs> and that's the reason we just put these two together and kind of took them out of order a little bit, um, C.J. Edwards uh, will be reading his story Letting Go, which is from the upcoming Plots with Guns that we've mentioned uh, several times on the show. Um, and C.J. Edwards is a police officer. 
So he uh, he kind of uh, is the uh, the counterweight to the Keaton posts for uh, for Fish Bites Cop. Yeah, um, yeah, he's a Indianapolis police officer, and uh, and his story is basically um, well, you'll hear it, but it goes into a lot of like it's basically from the perspective of a police officer in a messed up situation and everything. But it was really really uh, intense, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, yeah, something you probably don't don't get a lot at the the noir at the bar readings is that uh, you know these guys are all pretty crimey and yeah. you know police officers are part of the crime equation. Either they're bad cops, but this was you know like a good cop in a crime situation, which uh, I'm sure Jed Ayers has never heard a story about that ever. <laughs> That's right. So. <laughs> Um, just a little bit about C.J. Edwards. He's had stories published in Uncle B's Drive-In Fiction, Grift, Pulp Modern, and a slew of others. Uncle B's, by the way, is the uh, collection of novellas, actually, that the Tap, Tap, Tap story of David James Keaton uh, made it into as well. So they are in the same book together and in the same episode of Booked together. What are the chances? I have no idea. Pretty good, probably. My, my, my <laughs> math isn't isn't what it used to be. So, uh, uh, so okay, again, we forgot to mention this at the top of last episode. We had some issues with recording um, due to like some volume level changes and stuff. So we've done our best we can with this. Um, David being uh, always very enthusiastic about his reading, uh, his recording probably suffered the most. But I'm telling you, if you're listening in headphones, just unplug those, listen through a regular speaker, and um, enjoy uh, stories from David James Keaton and C.J. Edwards. David James Keaton is... Did he keep his name? Okay. David James Keaton... I, I don't get him started because unless you know you've got a night like this to let him go on and on. Yeah. But he's amazing the way his brain works. I'm reading a book of short stories of his right now called Fish Bites Cop, and uh, I don't know it. It's wearing me out. It's it's like you know. I'm just like, yeah, I get that, I get that, I get that. I don't get all of these, but I got that, and I got that. I was like, I don't know. Somebody raised on the VHS, uh, you know, late night at Grandma's house, scrambled cable TV images like I was. Uh, Anyway, I don't know what he's going to read tonight, but you can be sure it's going to be kind of fucked up. Uh, It's probably going to have lots of pop culture references. His story in here is a reference. Uh, it's it, anybody see uh, three weddings and a funeral? To just you, that you're forgiven for not. But uh, his his story is called three abortions and a miscarriage. Uh, if that gets you any kind of feeling for what you're in store for. He's also got uh, a novella in this fine collection of novellas. Uncle B's Drive-In Fiction. Yeah. As does Mr. C.J. Edwards. Uh, anyway, I don't know what he's going to read tonight, but uh, you know, take a good stiff drink and hold on. David James Keaton. Okay. Mastodon's a really good band, by the way. I love that band. Okay. So um, I kind of overthought this, and. Uh, 
Originally, I wanted to get tasered while I was reading this. There's actually a police officer in here right now. Did you guys know that? He's, he might be over in this area. Um, Mr. Edwards or Mr. CJ, you have to look at the video in context. Edwards. We argue on Facebook all the time because I'm always putting up these dash cam videos where like some police officer will kick a pregnant woman in the head and he's like, you didn't see the whole thing. You didn't see, there's a lot of, it's out of context there. So the idea was that he would taser me while I was reading. And um, he was very patient with all my questions. He's like, well, I don't think I can do that. They, act, they keep track of the cartridges. You can come down to the station and we'll make a circle of officers and we call it riding the bull, which is like the third worst offer ever to come to the station and get tasered. So anyway, um, I'm not going to get tasered, so it's false advertising. But if you would have tasered me, I would have worn a lot of layers because I looked up how to resist tasering, and it would have done nothing. And so I would have been reading, it would have hit me, and I just would have pulled it out and dropped it, and he would have had to think about this and go back to Facebook. And Okay, anyway. So this story is about tasers and evolution and how um, eventually they're not going to do shit to us, dude. So... <laughs> So before the night ends with me crashing through the woods in a stolen police car, I'll drive around stuck on one thought. You know how in the movies someone does a horrible thing because they start out with a righteous cause but take a wrong turn somewhere? I love those movies, but I never had the patience to start with the righteous cause. I skipped to the wrong turn, maybe trying, too, trying hard to look conflicted if someone's watching the movie with me. She parked my car at his house last night. It sat under his window with both of her bodies braided together, the car a mere 20 feet away. I was alone in our bed waiting for a train loud enough to rock my brain to sleep when my car's battery died, headlights fading, all the windows down while her favorite station cranked loud enough for them to fuck to. And now my battery jump started again. I hear her favorite radio station everywhere. With the radio off even, across impossible distances, even through weather and hate that hinders most reception. And tonight, the DJ on that station will be talking about Christmas. This is my attempt at a shitty DJ voice. Hey, you long-time listeners. You know that big, sad pile of trees I told you about a couple weeks back? You know what happened to those trees? If you're just tuning in, this is what I saw. On the way to work, I saw this mountain of pine trees in the parking lot behind my building near the tracks, all the duct tape and rope and red ribbons and plastic bags. It was kind of eerie with all those scorched light bulbs and cracked ornaments. It was like a crime scene. It'll seem like I've heard this jockey all my life because this story sounds really familiar. So lady, uh, ladies, so later I wake up from a cozy Bob Money country Christmas concert country-induced catnap to see this horrific sight out my window. A giant bonfire and circle of firemen's. Their families, too, are all setting up card tables and coffee and donuts, wives trading recipes, kids running around playing grab ass. They must do this every year, right? Burn all the Christmas trees? I criticize them for that, but hey, those men are real heroes. Who could argue with that? It's their job. It's what they do. So while I'm driving around towards the antenna tower on the horizon towards this voice, I'll call his request line. Sure, I'll play that song, buddy. Don't worry, this happens more than you think. You know how they say bathrooms contain the last evidence after a breakup? Like her shampoo? Wrong. You know where she last exists? Her music, man. Hey, I'll play that song for you, kid. It's not like I was born without a heart. I was born without, with three testicles, though. Seriously. 
coming out of the shower on a hot day, I can do that swinging clank, 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 just like a corporate desk toy. <laughs> One time I heard this DJ swear he was born without a nervous system. We'll see about that. But hey, let's check with our sponsors. Hello, do you have computer, money, car, termite, job, cat, dog, and logic problems? Logic problems? Yes, logic problems. Remember those when life asks you if a car leaves the house at 7 o'clock with two people and a train leaves the station at noon carrying 100 tons of cargo and a plane leaves the airport at 8 in the morning at a longitude of 68.2 degrees? Then what's your favorite color? I will tell you it sounds like a code. But it's actually directions to my house, our house. What did you say? I will explain that I also live near a river, a bridge, an airport, railroad tracks. He won't respond to this, so I'll tell him that I'll need that song I requested played fast because he's given me all the evidence I needed. So you want me to play it fast or you want me to play it fast? Listen, friend, if I don't finish reading a commercial spot, they just take it out of my pay. It's bad enough the bite the government takes, but hey, while we're on the subject of bites, did you know that a monkey bite is genetically indistinguishable from a human being? And that's tonight's theme, song duels between evolution and interior design. Uh, I mean, intelligent design. God songs or monkey songs only? Do you have one of those? I'll ask him what time he's off the radio. 4 a.m. Now to get it going, we got Presley Abbott's Fish to Frog, the Monkey to Man to Monkey, a double shot of the Pixie Sticks, Monkey Counts to Seven, mixed in with the Roadies Swim Fins, and of course, the Pete Ezekiel classic, Shock the Monkey, within reason. Admittedly, our definition of evolution gets stretched kind of thin, but songs with mermaids will count. Next caller. I'll stop my car, roll down my windows, crank the radio so I can keep listening to his voice and climb his fire escape. For God's songs, he says, they're pretty much going to be all Bob Money songs. Bob Money himself was here Friday for an interview confessing he uses cliches in his choruses so people think they heard his songs before. Ain't that cheating now? Speaking of cheating, looks like we got a visitor. I'll punch this motherfucker in the face so hard that his headphones wind up clamped around my fist. So hard the on-air sign above us will detonate. So hard my fist will sort of become his face with his asshole's ears and 70 sideburns suddenly adorning my knuckles like a fucked up Mr. Potato Head. Sinuses will collapse like a crying child's waffle cone on the sidewalk as I bury my arm halfway through his chair, spraying blood, brains, spit, spite, everything he was hiding in there except that goddamn voice. Then I'll take out my road flares and my squirt gun full of gasoline and I'll torch the rows of CDs and albums lined in his glass booth. At some point, he might want to know what he did to deserve this. Maybe deny fucking you that night. I'll set him straight. You killed my car. Listening for sirens, I won't be sure if music will burn. Then I'll remember the camping trip her and I took last summer, the fire dying because the wood was wet. Down to a road floor like tonight, barely enough red light to screw around with, but desperate to keep going. I found a basketball in my trunk, low on air like us, deflated. I only kept it because someone ran over it and it sort of survived, worse for wear like us. The basketballs burn, she asked me that night, and right before the ball detonated and knocked me on my ass, blowing out the flames and peppering my balls with needles of scalding rubber, we discovered that yes, they do burn. It turns out everything burns, just not for very long. I'll run out of gas because I siphon it from my squirt gun. I'll hope to luck into a gas station at the last second. No dice. They never have dice anymore, fuzzy or otherwise. Engine light flickering, I'll have just enough coast in the car to reach a giant blue wheelchair stencil outside of a theater. 
In my rear view, I'll see a police cruiser spin, run the stop sign, clip an island of dead flowers, then screech into the spot behind me. I'll guess that this cop just saw a real good movie. And when the cop steps out, I'll be disappointed. Not just because it's not Officer Edwards. You should have a helmet, I'll say. Why, she'll ask. You could have pulled it off all dramatic, hair spilling out. I don't see a handicap permit. Move the car. I've had stretches of all-female law enforcement run-ins before, sometimes for months at a time, but I have a feeling this will be my last. I'll click my ignition in vain, hoping she'll understand I'm empty and spare me the detached series of questions climaxing with a $600 ticket. I've had friends before try to convince me that only lawbreakers hate cops. That's one theory. But it's worse to respect them because you're praying, it's worse to respect them because you're praying to let you get away with something. This is why you should dread getting out of a ticket way more than getting one. But I'll, thinking, I'll be thinking about smoldering songs instead of money, knowing that no one would ever believe I'm out of gas when you can smell it on me this thick. Then I'll touch my tongue to my nose, blood. She'll never believe I ran out of that either. Nostrils flaring, she'll ask for ID as I attempt a distraction. So why'd you run that stop sign, I'll ask her. It's my job. It's what you do? What? You know, whenever, you, whatever made you run that stop sign, that's what you do. Just say it. Say what? Say it's what I do. It's what you do? No, it's what you do. It's what you do. Close enough. You know what drives me nuts, though? Listen, you're the one who said that, sir. Step out of the car. Because it's not as impressive as you think. You only hear people say, it's what I do, if their previous list of jobs is embarrassing. Dishwasher, landscaper, boiler cleaner, construction worker, fertilizer spreader, cat sitter, motel mattress mover, slaughterhouse hoser, stolen candy bar peddler, and as of today, disc jockey. That's not what I do. That's what I did. Do you understand? I won't tell her what all those fuckers really have in common or where she could find them now. It's not what I did at all, it's what they did with her. Step out of the car, please, sir. When my feet touch the ground, moonlight will reveal my raspberry glows of gore and show draw what looks to be an elaborate toy pistol. What the fuck? I barely get the fuck out when she pulls the trigger. Two darts will pierce my sternum and I'll curl instinctively, sucking my gut like I caught a cannonball. The coil of telephone wire that now connects us will crackle and I wince, expecting the cool comfort of asphalt on its way. But the electricity will have no effect. I'll take a halting breath. Nothing. She'll flick another button on the toy to amplify the noise, and we'll keep staring at each other, me tempted to whistle so she doesn't feel so stupid. Are you sure it's on? I'll finally ask her. She'll turn the weapon sideways for study. I think so. You, you can hear it too, right? I hear something. Wait, try turning that knob near the pink thing on the end. Hold on. She'll fumble, fumble with the grip as the weapon unspoils more wire to the pavement, crackling even louder now. Nothing, she'll ask. My mouth's dry, but it could be unrelated. <laughs> I will carefully pluck the darts from my skin like I'm unhooking fish lips, dropping them with a shrug, trying hard to keep a smile off my crimson mug. Disgusted, she'll throw the weapon aside and hold up a finger. Stay here. I'll wait, cracking my knuckles and playing with my hands. Once while barbacking, I watched a long table full of hearing-impaired consultants arguing about the best way to transcribe television shows. One deaf man in particular was covering another man's hand and looking in another direction while this other man moved those fingers even more frantically to keep communicating. Back then, I thought he was trying to stop those hands and silence that man because of a disagreement. 
but now I understand that he was just listening to everyone in the room, using his hands to touch one voice while his eyes translated the motions of another simply to hear as many people as possible. I remember how she always wanted to steer every car I was driving and reach over just for kicks and how her fingers all worked together, confident neither of us would fight for the wheel. When she gets back, the cop will have retrieved something bigger from her car. First, I'll think it's a shotgun, although it's way too thick and it's actually purple. I'll swear there are even stickers that decorate it like a kid's skateboard, a dead ringer for a super soaker, right down to the steady drip off the tip like an old man with prostate trouble. What the hell is that? New tasers, shoots an electrified stream of water. That is hilarious. I'll be dodging her deluge as we circle her cruiser, me laughing outright now, her yelling into her shoulder for backup. Then we'll suddenly be two feet apart, me staring down the barrel of this comically huge weapon while she furiously pumps it like a cock to build water pressure. I raise my hands, you got me. She'll hose me down, nose to toes, electric insects buzzing again. But besides some sniffles, maybe a bloody nostril bubble, nothing will give me any incentive to submit. I'll be sincerely sorry, but it'll, hard, it'll be hard to get this across. Don't feel bad, it's not you, I'll tell her, it's me. That's what she told me anyway. She'll throw this weapon next to the first one as I reflexively try to reassure her, hands still high, palms out. No, it's not your fault, I'll say, see this? I'm missing five things, a nervous system and basic math skills. Sorry, but those guns don't work anymore on anyone, don't you realize? Maybe you motherfuckers are using them too much. Maybe you're tasering everybody, it doesn't do shit. It's evolution, baby, don't you listen to the goddamn radio? She'll finally smile as she gently cocks her 38 Special flush against my forehead. A minute later, I'll slip behind her steering wheel, smooth as smoke as I put the cop, gear in, cop car into gear. I'll leave her studying her revolver, wondering whether she fired or not. I won't need to wonder after touching my tongue to my forehead. Evolution, baby. Then I'll bounce over speed bumps, walking my hands over the wheel, dodging theater goers with thumbs in each other's pockets. I'll miss most of them. Blue lights will fill vanishing points in front and behind. My night ending with the perfect car chase, off-road through stones, through barns, spooking horses back in time and straight into those trees I spent my life hiding behind. They'll explode and fall easy, long dead from three generations and a thousand carvings of pierced hearts, initials, corrections. No one will dare follow me. All this shit will happen. Just wait. That's it. And now for the rebuttal. Uh, Chris C.J. Edwards is actually an Indianapolis police officer and is armed. Don't make any sudden movements. I assume, are you reading from uh, Drive-In Fiction tonight? No, he's not reading from Drive-In Fiction tonight, so when you love whatever he's reading tonight, you can rest assured you can read something brand new by him and Mr. Keaton and other noir at the bar uh, participants like Matthew C. Funk by picking up Uncle B's drive-in fiction, C.J. Edwards. God, I hope I never pull him over. Uh, it's always a party until the cops show up, so uh, I'm going to bring it back down just a little bit. Um, 
Uh, this is a story that's going to be in plots with guns whenever uh, they decide to release the next issue. It was supposed to come out in June, and then every month it keeps going. So I've been assured it comes out in November, so we'll see. Letting go. When a bullet slaps the air around your head, there's a moment when you think someone is snapping their fingers trying to get your attention. You might even look around to see who the hell is doing that. Then understanding comes and reaches with clenched fingers to rank your... To, clenched fingers to yank your asshole tighter than the knot in a piece of string. Dropping face first into a pile of dog shit in a back alley populated by refuse and used needles becomes the easiest thing in the world to do. Todd, my beat partner, falls next to me. Dude, I'm hit. Shit. I roll. Gritty puffs of dirt bloom around us. It's a rifle. I can tell by the sound, a rolling thunder instead of the crackerjack pop-pop of a pistol. Todd's blanched face blinks at me. My fingers find the microphone clipped to my left shoulder. Shots fired. Officer shot. The radio spits static as the control operator blares out our last known location and starts help rolling our way. Up the dark alley, tiny flares of light tell me where the shooter is. I lay next to Todd. Where? Leg. Todd's left thigh looks like a Picasso. More puffs. Something rips a chunk from my cheek. Five yards the other side of Todd is a skeleton of a cinder block garage swallowed in weeds. It's better than nothing, better than laying here, waiting for the next squished thump of a round, finding more of our flesh and bone. Greg, we gotta move. Todd's voice is a black hole. I'm working on it. The leg wasn't good. A thick puddle has already pooled beneath it. I climb on top of him. Hold on to me. His arms clench me in a hug and my hands work their way under his gun belt. With a heave, I roll toward the only cover I can see in the blackness. Nettles assault my head and face. Glass crunches under my hip. The smell of rotting weeds hammers my sinuses. The crumbling blocks shield us from the gunman. I look up and see the woman who called 911 about hearing sh gunshots watching. Her eyes flare under a stack of curlers and her knuckles are bone white as they squeeze her cell phone clutched to her flower-speckled robe. I wave her back. Get inside. My words are a cattle prod. They wake her from stunned disbelief. She turns and runs. I paw at the mic again. Control 3320 is shot. Unknown suspect is a block north armed with an assault rifle. Get him medic here now. Sirens light up the night with sing-song wails and warbled beeps. More shots blanket the night air. The booms sound different, and I don't hear the rounds snapping in the air around me anymore. The shooter has found a new sponge to soak up his lead. The radio screams as Sergeant Welch's patrol car a block south and east is lacerated by full metal jacket slugs. He warns others not to fly in too fast. He says he's hit, but not bad. I hear this, I understand this, but all I comprehend is my partner's eviscerated leg. Todd is fading, passing out from loss of blood. Reaching as high up in his crotch as I can, I jam my hand in to try to slow the blood racing through the artery and escaping out the wound in his leg. Only seconds have passed since I radioed for an ambulance, but each one is stretched so long that time is meaningless. Control, I need that medic right the fuck now. Reassuring words that help is en route. Don't stop me. Don't help me stop Todd's blood from soaking into the earth, feeding the weeds. I push harder into his groin. He tries to say something. Hang on, brother. You're going to be okay. Footsteps grind down the alley. Left hand still gripping Todd's artery, I draw my pistol. The trigger is halfway down before I realize it's another cop moving over me. I let go of the trigger and put the gun away. Jesus. Rick Foster drops the word like a prayer when his eyes stutter on Todd's wound. Where's the ambulance? I punch the words at him. Rage makes my vocal cords raw. Rick gets on his radio, demanding that the medics step it up. We both know Todd can't wait. 
My arms and the front of my uniform are soaked in blood. With a look, Rick and I decide to move Todd to Rick's car. Two more officers, John Blaine and his rookie, whose name I can't remember yet, skid to a stop next to us in their cruiser. Get him in here. John and his rookie help us stuff Todd in the back. Then John takes over the driver's seat and rockets us backwards down the alley to the cross street. The radio tells us the ambulance is standing by four blocks away. They won't come any closer with shots still being fired. I'm pissed, but I can't blame them. The windows are down and I can still hear the quick crack of rifle fire. John is rolling dark, no lights, no siren. No one knows where the shooter is and we don't want to give him an obvious target. Fuck, fuck, fuck. The words rip off my lips, willing the car to go faster. The cruiser pounds each pothole, but it still feels like we're driving Miss Daisy to church. The word SWAT is repeated over the radio. Shit, by the time SWAT can rally, this will all be over. The static hissing calls of pinned down officers trickles farther east. The shooter is moving. Another one of our guys needs an ambulance. I don't hear who it is. My fingers digging into Todd's groin begin to cramp. My eyes close and I focus on not letting go. Not letting go. Not letting go. Greg, move. Not letting go. Greg, not letting go. Headlights blast my face. Surrounding the car are more officers, medics, firemen. If I let go, he'll bleed to death. A grizzled face with a mustache the size of a Cuban cigar pushes up to my nose. He will if we can't get at him. We got him, son. We got him now. Let us get to work. The fireman pulls my hand away. Todd disappears onto a gurney flooded with fire personnel. White-shirted medics start thrusting needles and tubes into his body. His blank face, eyes rolled up. His face is blank, eyes rolled up, body limp. Another fireman tosses me a towel from the back of the ambulance. My hands are shaking, but I'm able to catch it. The white fabric streaks red with globs of drying blood. I start wiping. Ted Foster, our shift lieutenant, trots up, shotgun held crook in the crook of his arm, barrel up. He looks at me. Any of that blood yours, Greg? I shake my head. No, sir. I forget about the, my torn cheek. It's only a scratch. You good? Am I good? No. Will I function? Do my job? Yes. More shots ring out, almost like full auto, but not. Another squad car squeals up, and the fireman helps Sergeant Welch out of the passenger seat. His hollow gaze lands on me, and he thrusts out his own shotgun into my slick hands. Greg, here. I take the long gun and watch as they help him into the back of the ambulance with Todd. He squeezes into one of the side seats, propping his wounded arm against his chest. All right, let's go. Lieutenant Foster's voice snaps me around. Rick and I follow him to his car. By the sound of things, the shooter is somewhere between New York and Michigan, near Forest Avenue. He lights up any car he sees, but I think we need to get a little closer before we hoof it. If we start taking fire, don't wait for me to park it. Just bail out, okay? I open the back door of his car. Dump those two car seats. As I pull the boosters from the back and pitch them onto the pavement, I remember that Foster has twin girls. Shy little things, they like to wear their hair in pigtails and wear identical pink dresses. The seats bounce and skitter on the pavement, and I slide in. Rick takes the front next to Foster. Heads up now. Foster throws the car in gear, and it oozes through the clenched alleys drifting south. My sticky hands chamber a shell so the shotgun is ready to fire with the, while the lieutenant gets us as close as he dares. We get out. On me. Rick and I stay on his ass. The booming of the rifle is close now. Frantic updates from officers closer than we guide us in as we hop from house to house, covering each other's advance while dodging streetlights when we can, jogging past their anorexic glow when we can't. 
Dogs snarl, dogs snarl and snap as we slip past yards and push through bushes. More than once we wave residents who have gone stupid curious back into their homes. My eyes tight on, my eyes tight on the narrowing circle that hovers in front of my face and I swing my head back and forth every step to keep from surrendering to the tunnel vision. Almost colliding with Rick, I lurch to a stop. I drop into a crouch. The shotgun comes up to scan the darkness. We are two houses north of Michigan Street, and for the first time since I seen Todd fall, I don't hear gunfire. The sirens are nonstop as more and more police cars tearing from other parts of the city to gather at staging sites that are being called out over the radio. I can feel the pressure of air pushing against my neck, and I try to look every direction at once. No gunfire means he's out of ammo or moving. If he was dead, there would have been a broadcast. We creep forward. Across Michigan Street, two shadows slink around the corner of a house. Light glints off badges and the silver buttons of their uniforms. Lieutenant Foster steps between two houses moving east. Rick and I inch along behind. Sweat charges down my spine and builds on my cheeks, drips from my nose. My eyes burn with it. I can taste salt on my lips as it swirls with the copper fear clogging my mouth. The sound, when it comes, shakes the earth. The sound breaks the night. The sound squeezes the world into a space that occupies the single square block around me. Pounding my skull like a brick dropped from heaven, it bursts out in the darkness. For the first time, the faceless gunman isn't the only one shooting. Lieutenant Foster is firing his shotgun. Rick is beside him, and I see the slide of his Glock buck backward, ejecting spent casings that fall to tinkle like tiny bells on the sidewalk. Across the street, a police patrol rifle burps fire from another angle. Everyone is shooting, everyone but me. The muzzle of the shotgun is up, searching. I don't see him. There is a place that I know he must be, but I don't see him. My finger, my finger caresses the safety just above the trigger. The metal switch wants to depress. The trigger wants to be pulled, but I don't see him. In my ear, the memory of our firearms instructor bellows. Never shoot just because everyone else is shooting. You are responsible for every round. I don't shoot, even though I want to more than anything. Lieutenant Foster drops the spent shotgun. He jerks sideways to the corner of a car, drawing his pistol. Across the street, the officer with the rifle sprints forward, still firing. I hear the zip smack of rounds striking the house beside me, and I dive for cover behind a tree trunk. Bulging roots thump my elbows. Silence. Someone is shouting, but I can't grasp the words through the sudden hush that falls. Words I should know float through the humidity. Words like suspect, down, and clear, all clear. I'm up and moving. Everything swims past my eyes like water over stones. The tree, parked Hondas and Chevys, and mailboxes with the little American flags jutting up over their rounded tops. After a dozen steps, the night expands with a rush as the time and place return to their proper dimensions. The air smells like firecrackers. I wade through it and join a small circle of officers. Their names won't come. We all look down at the shooter. He is short, his body gone to a collection of fleshy rolls. His torso is pressed into military web gear with half a dozen loaded magazines still packed into pouches. A Chinese SKS rifle is slung across his back. Next to him is an AK-47, one of those Eastern Bloc imports. Thick glasses have fallen down to his chin. A strap of hair pasted itself down between his bulging eyes. He looks like an accountant, like a seasonal tax prep guy that works in one of those tax service places with a Statue of Liberty or Uncle Sam dancing out in front. 
He looks harmless. He looks dead. I still want to shoot him. Want to unload the shotgun, now pulling heavy at my arms into him. The unspent, the unspent shells grumble at me from their steel prison. If I knew right then that he just killed his entire family, wife, kids, dog, and cat, and a little blue, blue and white parakeet, I might have let those shells have their way. If I knew Todd was lying lifeless in the ER trauma room with his own wife standing over him weeping, I would have. I don't know these things yet and won't know them until later. Later, when all I can do is punch the wall till my knuckles crack open and bleed. Cops are people too, folks. It does, I will feel much worse next time I shoot at a cop, frankly. All right, uh, you just got done listening to the ever hilarious and kind of weirdly supernatural this time, uh, David James Keaton with his Burning Down DJ story, followed by CJ Edwards with Letting Go, um, which is uh, upcoming in the one of the upcoming uh, issues of Plots with Guns. Do they do issues? Is that what they do? They do issues. All right. Um Anyway, while you were listening to that, uh, Livius and I are actually back in time in the past um, and recording this on election day. So at the moment we cut away to the audio, uh, to the recordings, Obama won the presidency. So that was kind of big. If there was a bit of hesitation from me right before we cut away, it's because I was watching some uh, results come in. It's hard to keep Rob focused, you know. He's always being distracted by giant political, you know, elections and stuff. You said elections, right? I maybe <laughs> terrible what joke. Because <laughs> right. oh, oh, uh, I got you. I, yeah. <laughs> never mind. I was like, what the hell did I say? No, I'm all sorry. Right. I, I lowered the bar significantly just now by making an <sighs> election joke. How Gordon Highland of you? Yeah. But so. uh, back to what's important right now uh cj edwards who i'd never really had a chance to hear anything from or or read anything from before really brought it with a uh with a surprisingly i don't want to say like necessarily emotional but like tense uh story about about a couple of um you know partner cops in a in a really bad situation yeah, no, I definitely thought moving is the word yeah, that, that came to mind listening to it the second time, you know, and I was listening to it. I really enjoyed it. But yeah, I really listened to like kind of the emotion and stuff. And it was uh, very good stuff and still managed to be very, you know, kind of noir just, you know, the flip side. This time the protagonist isn't, uh, you know, isn't a scumbag that you're rooting for. So um, good stuff there. And then, you know, Keaton, what else can you say? God damn it. That whole scene when the cop is trying to taser him. Yeah. Speaking of scumbags you're rooting for. Yeah, I had to listen to that again when I was separating the episodes because I was laughing and I know I missed parts of it because I was just too concentrated on what he had just said that was cracking me up. So, All right, so for anybody who didn't miss that very subtle bit of information that's very, very significant, Livia said, while I was separating the episodes. Now, what that means is he did some tech stuff. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't even think about it. I'm like, what is he talking about? What's he getting at? So that's right. I was responsible for that. 
So if it sucks, it's totally my fault. Well, it's just it's just that anybody who's listened to you know some of the episodes knows that for the most part I do the editing mm-hmm. and a lot of the back end stuff. So I wanted to give you credit because oh uh, well, thank you. Um, Livius has edited episodes and he has um, cut audio and stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, it's me. So anytime he throws in, I want to make sure he gets credit for that because um, usually it's my wheelhouse. Oh, I feel like a sense of pride right now. Like this, like this is our baby and we both love it equally. Good job, little buddy. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, sorry. <laughs> so, oh, never mind. Anyway, so that wraps up our Noir at the Bar, Corydon, um, series whatever i don't know what we're calling it but that's that's it um we had a blast uh definitely there will be more readings in our future um as i'm uh, now prognosticating where this podcast is going to go it's fun to do these every now and then i wouldn't want to do them all the time but you know i think we do them with just enough uh time between them that, that, that it keeps them really fresh and it's just really great to hear authors specific takes on things and you know the voice that they wrote it with absolutely and Jed usually knows how to throw together a good collection of people. Um, his, him and Scott, their noir at the bar thing seems to attract a really good quality group of people. So, um, and obviously the court in Indiana, to my surprise, seems to be a great place for a hotbed of good literary activity. Yeah, you'd think like Chicago, you'd think we'd have that, right? Yeah, you. well, you would assume, you would hope. You would dream that Chicago has a thriving crime literary scene. You know, maybe we should just throw together our own reading in Chicago. Yeah, we should. We absolutely should. It's not even a maybe. It should happen. It needs to happen. Yeah. Maybe we should publish our book first. Yeah, that's the thing. It's baby steps. It's, you know, start a podcast. Once we got that going, we'll make a book. Once we got that going, you know, we'll do a reading. And then after that, you know, it's just the next big project. So Conquer the world. Conquer the world. That's after readings. Jed's, Jed's <laughs> already working on conquering the world. He's got it all down. He's got some books published, some readings under his belt. That's what he was telling us at the Waffle House. Conquer the world. That's next. Yeah, well, we're going to conquer the world with a, a movie idea that we were talking about that I'm not going to reveal um, <laughs> so that nobody steals the idea. But it was pretty much the best movie idea I've ever heard. Oh, my. So... Hey, we got through a whole episode without mentioning Sean Ferguson. (sighs) (sighs) All right. So, uh, you know what we're doing next? Nope. All right. Well, then I'm going to tell people what we're doing next. There's a chance we might do the the follow-up to Fifty Shades of Grey, the new erotic trilogy, because we got such a good response. But realistically, we're going to do, after this reading, the only thing we could do next really is Frank Sinatra in a blender from Matthew McBride. And, and... There's a good little chance we might get Mr. McBride on the show. Yeah, um, we'd love to have him on the show. He just seems like a cool guy, and um, he's writing. We just love his writing, so be looking forward to that. We'll definitely be talking about the book, and hopefully we'll have him on to talk about it as well. Or we do the mommy porn that I read about today. There's never. I mean, why do we have to choose? We can just do both. <gasps> I love it. That's right. So. More episodes, more interviews, more talking about John Ferguson. More mommy porn. Here at Booked, we don't even have rules because we just make them up as we go. It's so awesome. I like stuff that's awesome. Yeah. You know what else is awesome? (laughs) What else is awesome? Tuning in next time to Booked. 
Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.